we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the U.S. stock market averages continued the bear market correction. The correction actually extended for another week. We capped a strong week with a strong gain today across the board. But this is a correction. It is not a new bull market, but of course, if you watch stations like CNBC, you wouldn't know that because all day today, all they kept talking about on CNBC was that the market is now out of correction territory, meaning that it is no longer down 10% from the highs. And so we're no longer in a correction. Well, first of all, we didn't enter a correction. We entered a bear market. Now, bear markets have corrections too. They're called rallies, except people at CNBC don't get that. They think the only correction is a move down in a bull market. Now, this bull market went on for 10 years or the last one, so a lot of these guys don't remember the last bear market, and it wasn't even that long. A lot of these bear markets have been very short. They've declined you know, 40 50%, and then the Fed was able to come in and save the day. But people don't get that we are in a bear market now. Most likely, we're still in a bear market. We haven't made new highs. And so any rally is a correction, certainly a rally of more than 10%, right? That's the same definition for the downward corrections in a bull market. So if you want to apply that definition to an upward correction in a bear market, we are in a correction. And this is a you know pretty big correction. It's helping the bear market fall a slope of hope the dow was up uh you know 330 points or something like that today back above 24,700 in fact if you look at the dow jones year to date we're up almost six percent so far this year strong move we're not even finished with the month of january of course we have a holiday weekend so the markets will not be open on monday celebrating martin luther king day uh, but uh, still quite a few days left in January. The NASDAQ composite is actually outdoing the Dow. It's now up almost 8% on the year. And the biggest gainer is the Russell 2000. It's up almost 10%. In fact, the Russell 2000 is having its best annual start since 1987. Now, of course, 1987 didn't end well for the Russell 2000 or any of the stock markets. That was the year of the uh, stock market crash. 
in October of 1987. But of course, the Russell 2000 is the index that went the deepest into bear market territory. I think it was down something like 25%. I uh, forget the exact amount. Uh, so clearly, it is entitled to a, uh, a correction, and that's what we're having. In fact, the correction came for specifically the reason that I said it would happen. It came courtesy of the Federal Reserve. As I've been saying, I began forecasting even before the first rate hike in December of 2015 that if the Federal Reserve ever tried to normalize interest rates, it would never succeed. It would never be able to get rates back to normal because somewhere along the way, they would tip the stock market into a bear market, cause a recession, and the Fed would back off. And that's exactly what happened. The minute the stock market went into a bear market in the fourth quarter of last year, by early this year, Everybody did an about face, and all of a sudden, there are no more rate hikes, no more autopilot. Uh, they're just, you know, being patient. In fact, you had another Fed uh, a woman uh, from San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank president, Mary Daly, came out today, and she said the Fed is on pause for rate hiking. It's on pause. There's no longer a policy of gradually hiking rates. They have now paused, which means they've stopped. They have finished. And she said the Fed has paused even though she sees no indication of a recession. Well, if she sees no indication of a recession, why have they paused? But if they've paused, even though they see no indication of a recession, imagine what they're going to do once they see the indication of a recession that should already be staring them in the face. But of course, stock market investors are clueless about that. They're just having a party because the Powell put is back on the table. And they think simply because the Federal Reserve is no longer hiking rates that they don't have to worry about the Fed pushing the economy into a recession. Well, it's too late for that. Uh, the rate hikes of the past have already guaranteed that the economy is headed for recession. It doesn't matter whether they continue to raise rates in the future. The recession is a done deal. And it's just now you have that calm between the storm while uh, investors are still clueless and haven't yet connected those what should be very obvious dots. But it's not all about the Fed. The markets do have something else to get excited about, and that is the ending of the trade tensions between the U.S. and China and not only the removal of the threat of additional tariffs, but the removal of the tariffs that are already in place. And as I've said on this podcast before, the markets can rally for a while on the anticipation of the good news of a trade deal. But once the trade deal is announced, it's by the rumor sell the fact, especially since the trade deal is going to be a nothing burger. Nothing is going to be accomplished, but the markets are getting excited. And what really excited the markets today was a ridiculous uh, story, I guess, coming out of China. So it's emanating from China that the Chinese have decided that they are going to go on a buying spree in America. They're going to spend a trillion dollars over the next six years so that they eradicate the trade deficit between the U.S. and China, which right now is at an all-time record high. And so they're going to get rid of the trade deficit by buying a trillion dollars worth of stuff. Now, this is so ridiculous, but of course people don't get it. Oh yeah, great, China's gonna buy a trillion dollars. This is great. A trillion dollars of what? What exactly are the Chinese gonna buy? I mean, if we had a lot of stuff that the Chinese wanted, they'd already be buying it. I mean, the reason that we have a deficit is because we're not making the stuff that the Chinese want. Look, China doesn't have a trade surplus with every country. They have a deficit with a lot of countries. So China's got no problem importing products. They just have a problem importing them from us because we're not making them. Uh, and so if China is now going to start uh, buying all this stuff, A, where's the money going to come from? Because as I said, they're not running huge trade surpluses with the world. They're running them with us. They're running deficits with a lot of other countries, so their trade is relatively imbalanced. I mean, maybe they have a small surplus, uh, but overall, if they had a balance with us, they would be in deficit. So where's the money going to come from to go on this shopping spree? Well, the obvious place is their big stash of U.S. treasuries. They've got a pile of U.S. treasuries, so 
Why not spend that? And believe me, anything they buy with those treasuries is better than holding the treasuries. So if China is going to go on a liquidation spree and sell a trillion dollars worth of treasuries and buy some real things with the money, well, that's a big win for China. And it's a big loss for America because who's going to buy the treasuries that the Chinese sell? I don't know. Probably the Federal Reserve. Right. And where are they going to get the money? They're going to create it out of thin air. So what we're going to have is higher interest rates and a lot more inflation in the United States if the Chinese actually spend a trillion dollars instead of hoarding them in U.S. treasuries. But again, what are the Chinese going to buy with the money? Right. It's not like we've got all these factories that are spewing out all these products that we're going to ship over to China. I mean, what does China buy from us now? Well, they buy a lot of raw materials. Right. They buy uh, a lot of agricultural products. They buy metals, a lot of scrap metal we sell to China. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, they, they buy some automobiles, some some aircraft. But I mean, how much are they going to do? I mean, I think what they're going to do is maybe they're going to just start loading up on some of these supplies. Maybe they can buy more metal from us. Maybe they'll buy a bunch of gold from the United States. Right. But they'll buy resources. Maybe they'll buy more of our oil. Right. They're going to buy stuff. But that's stuff that American consumers are not going to get to buy because somebody in China is going to buy it instead. In fact, I think they'll buy a lot of used things. You know, we got a lot of used cars in the United States. A lot of these cars are, are coming off of lease. Americans can't afford them anymore. They're going to go up on the market. You know, there's a lot of used uh, Mercedes and BMWs and some pretty nice cars. Maybe the Chinese will buy those. Right. Instead of buying brand new ones, they'll come into America and buy a bunch of our used cars. I'm not sure what they're going to buy, but I think it's going to be a lot of stuff that's just just hanging around stuff that's that's already been manufactured and that the Chinese don't have and that they'd rather have than a pile of treasuries. So and people have to understand that the process right, that's been propping up this bubble economy is we send our money to China and they send their stuff here and they take our money. And, and loan it to the U.S. government by buying treasuries. So it's a win-win for us, and it's a lose-lose for them. They lose their stuff, and they get stuck with a bunch of worthless treasuries. Well, if all this is going to reverse, China's the winner. They finally get some real stuff. We're the losers. All, our all of our inflation chickens finally come home to roost. China reverses the process. They send us back our money, and we send them stuff. Right? Who knows what that stuff is going to be, but it's going to be stuff that Americans are no longer going to have. And that's going to be a lot more expensive because now we're going to have to compete with the Chinese. So whatever is going to happen to end this trade deal, if the Chinese actually do go on this big uh, spending spree, this is not going to be bullish for the U.S. economy. It's not going to be bullish for the dollar. I mean, the dollar was up today based on this. Uh, it is bearish for bonds, and bonds did fall, and long-term interest rates rose. One thing that rose was the price of oil was up about a dollar and a half. We actually traded above $54 a barrel today. That was the high uh, of the year, first time above 54 I think we closed just below it. Also, the rig count came out today. Biggest drop in three years, which means U.S. production going down, which means more oil is going to have to be imported, and, of course, the price is going to... Uh, go higher. Gold was down about 10 bucks, back down to about 1280. All this happy talk about trade, uh, you know, took a, some of the shine off of gold. In fact, even a really bad University of Michigan sentiment number that came out earlier this morning couldn't really help lift gold. I mean, it, it moved up a couple of bucks and then, you know, went right down. That was a terrible number. I mean, not, you know, if you just look at it on its own, it was 90.7. So, not a disaster just looking at the number, but the consensus was 97 and the last month was 98.3. So that was a big drop. In fact, it's the lowest that number has been since October of 2016. So that was before Donald Trump was elected president and created all this hope. The consumer sentiment is now back down to where it was before Trump was elected. Now, normally that would be bearish for the dollar. It would be bullish for gold. But again, all this talk about, you know, a positive deal on trade, you know, the stock market was going up. And so, you know, it's a Friday, it's a holiday weekend, and everybody is excited because the Fed is on their side. And so they kind of brushed the bad news under the rug, which is what they've been doing with a lot of bad news. Of course, 
There's a lot of bad news that they don't have to brush under the rug because the government shutdown means that that bad news isn't being released. And so Wall Street doesn't have to deal with it. They don't have to ignore it because it's out of sight, out of mind. But at some point, you know, all that bad data is going to come out like one big deluge. And now all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're going to see just how bad the data was. And the fact is that the Fed isn't just pausing because they don't see a recession coming. They probably know a recession is coming. They're just too afraid to say so. And so that's why they've paused. And also they're trying to stop the bear market. But as I also said from before they capitulated, I did say that when the Fed gave the market what it needed, when it gave the addicts another dose of cheap money, that we would get a correction. We would get a rally. But the rest of my forecast was that the rally would not take us to new highs, that we would not enter a new bull market, that the rally would run out of steam and we would start going down for new lows because we need a bigger fix, right? This economy, this addict was built on 0% interest rates. Two and a quarter percent is much too high. That's not enough stimulus, even though that's very low when you're used to zero and now you got two and a quarter that's not low enough. I mean, look at the real estate market still imploding. I was reading this article today about uh, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. I think prices just dropped like 17% and prices had already been falling. Connecticut's a disaster. I mean, my house in Connecticut is worth less than it was in the 1990s. I mean, if I didn't, I spent a lot of money fixing it up. But I mean, if I hadn't done those improvements, if it just looked the way it looked when I bought it uh, in 2009, uh, you know, it would be worth a lot less than it was. Well, it wasn't built into two, until 2002. And, you know, I, I, I bought it for less than half of what it, it sold as a new house. Uh, but, you know, if you look at where prices were in Connecticut in general for houses that were here, we're back in the 1990s in Connecticut, yet they're still falling uh, because of what's going on. And it's not just Connecticut. Uh, you know, I still haven't got an offer on my house in, in Florida, I mean, I've cut the price once so far. I haven't done it again, but I haven't had a single offer. I mean, hopefully someone's going to buy that. Uh, but, you know, the market is, is softening. And one of the big reasons for that is the fact that rates have already moved up to the point where houses are a lot less affordable now than they were when rates were at zero. Of course, not every stock participated in the uh, rally today. Tesla down 13% today announcing layoffs. Basically, Elon Musk is saying that, you know, we got to prepare. It's been a tough environment and they're laying off people and the stock was clobbered pretty bad. I mean, I've talked quite a bit uh, on this podcast about Tesla. It's one of the few stocks that I've, that I've actually talked about on the show, Individual Stocks. And again, I don't give individual investment recommendations, but the stock is in the news for so many different reasons. But again, it also epitomizes the bubble uh, because while Tesla, you know, it, you know, they make some nice cars and it is a, a good concept uh, of, you know, these electric cars, the problem has always been the valuation. I mean, people buy into the hype, they buy into the fantasy, and they ignore all of the overwhelming problems that the company has, and they forget that maybe they make the only electric cars on the market. In fact, not anymore, but you know, at, to the extent that electric cars become appealing, there are plenty of other car companies uh, that are capable of making electric cars, probably doing a better job than Tesla with better distribution. And, you know, and who knows? I mean, right now there's a lot of subsidies too for buying electric cars. I mean, those subsidies may not be there uh, in the future, but there's a lot of reasons to be worried about a stock like Tesla, uh, yet people just throw caution to the wind and they just keep on buying it until all of a sudden the music stops and the bubble pops. And, you know, Tesla is an example of what's going to happen to much of the market. You know, the whole market is in a gigantic bubble. You have, you know, certain examples of individual stocks that represent more of an extreme uh, part of that bubble, uh, but you have the same mentality throughout the U.S. stock market. And, you know, the problem is, you know, so many people who are investing uh, in the U.S. market, you know, even professional investors really have no idea uh, what they're talking about. You know, I was watching on, again, on CNBC just this week, a couple of days ago. I mean, I, you know, again, I couldn't believe the comment. I had a tweet about it as soon as I, I heard it. But there was a guy that's actually a regular. He's a CNBC contributor a halftime report trader, Jim Lebenthal, right? Now, this is a seasoned guy, right? He's been a professional money manager for over 25 years. He used to have his own uh, money management firm. Now he is a partner at Surety Partners. Uh, he's based out of New York City. 
And look, this guy is not, you know, he's not a simpleton. You know, first of all, he holds a BA in molecular biology from Princeton University. Now, I don't think they give those degrees out like cotton candy over there. I mean, that's a real major molecular biology. Then the guy's got an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. I mean, Donald Trump might have, you know, bought his way in there. But I mean, this guy probably got in there the, the old fashioned way. He probably earned it. That's not an easy business school to get into. And he's a chartered financial analyst, CFA. So, I mean, this is a this is a smart guy. This isn't a, like an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? I mean, this guy, you know, is, you know, he's got a mind. Yet he knows nothing about one thing, and that's gold, right? Because he's on the the show, and gold was, you know, about on a high for the year. And the host of the show asks him, hey, what do you think about gold? You know, gold's at a new high. You know, what do you think about it? And he said, you know, we don't really look at gold. Uh, I have no interest in investing in gold. After all, gold has no uses as a metal. And I'm like, what? Gold has no uses as a metal? I mean, as a matter of fact, gold actually has more uses than any other metal on the planet. I mean, it is the most useful metal that exists. I mean, if you don't believe me, just Google it yourself and you'll find out. Yet this guy doesn't think it has any uses as a metal. In fact, gold is used in a lot of things today. But the only reason it's not used in more things is because of how expensive it is. I mean, just about any metal that's used for anything, if you use gold, it would do it better. But the reason that they substitute lesser quality metals is because gold is so much more expensive. So sometimes, even though gold is better, it's not enough better to where it's worth the extra cost. But sometimes it's so much better that you need to pay the extra cost and then you use it. But, you know, if you can substitute something that's not as good, then you will. But the point is that people who are professional money managers, right, that that go to the Wharton School and are CFAs and that, you know, that are in the industry for so long, they are basically taught, it's drummed into their head that gold is this awful investment, that it's nobody buys gold. It's just, you know, your gloom and doomers, you know, your guys with tinfoil hats, uh, you know, they're the, the conspiracy theory nut jobs. I mean, no real money manager would ever buy any gold, right? And, and so they have such a negative opinion of gold that it actually goes to the extremes. I mean, not only do they think gold is useless as an investment, they think it is also useless as a metal. I mean, they think it has absolutely no value whatsoever. It's, I mean, I don't know what they think gold is or why anybody ever wanted it. I mean, it must be a complete puzzle to them. Why on earth, you know, anybody would have ever wanted gold for anything? I mean, did, I mean, what, what about all the central banks that are still holding on to gold? I mean, do they have any clue as to why that is happening? But, you know, this is just the perfect example. These are the people that are managing everybody's money, right? They're making all the decisions, and they think that gold is a worthless metal, right? Well, as ignorant as this guy is about gold, he's ignorant about a lot of other things. Even though he's a very smart guy, intellectually, maybe he's got a high IQ, you know, he, you know he's, a, he's a smart guy, you know, but he doesn't really understand uh, the, the macro picture. He doesn't really understand uh, investing. He, he just knows enough that if it's a bull market, he can make money, right? As long as the market's going up, Everything is fine. You know, and that, you know, by the way, this week, uh, John Bogle died, the uh, creator of the Vanguard funds, the quintessential indexer, the, the godfather of indexing, where, hey, uh, Bogle's idea was the way to make the most amount of money is just don't use your brain, just be average, just buy everything, just buy the entire market and then charge a really low fee. And that's the way to outperform. And you know what? That can work for a while. In a bull market, that'll work. As long as everything is going up, as long as the crap is going up along with, with the good stuff, well, then you don't have to just buy the good stuff. You can buy the crap. And in fact, sometimes the crap goes up even more than the good stuff when people are mindlessly buying everything. And, and that's what people have been doing uh, for this bull market. Really, this long-term bull market started in 1981 when the Dow you know, broke through 1,000, where it had been capped at at 1966, and we had falling interest rates, uh, we had a more and more aggressive Fed, and we inflated this huge bull market where you know idiots could look like geniuses. There's an expression, 
don't confuse brains with a bull market, yet people do that all the time. And mindless investing could look very smart in a bull market, especially the mother of all bull markets. So a lot of people were, were singing his praises, you know, now that he passed away. And I don't want to take anything away from the guy. He was a smart guy, very successful guy, uh, philanthropist, made a lot of money, gave a lot of money away. Um, and so, yeah, and there is a place for passive investing, you know, but I think that if you're actually smart, you can make a lot more money than people who invest passively as long as you're patient. Because there's going to be periods of time where passive investing is going to outperform active management, even if you're a smart manager and you're doing the right thing. Because if other people aren't doing the right thing, well, then you're going to be outvoted. Because in the short run, uh, the markets are a voting machine. But in the long run, they're a weighing machine. I think that's what John Templeton said. And John Templeton was a big believer in active management rather than passive investing. And I think, uh, you know, active management is going to have its day. I mean, not just me. I mean, I think, you know, I'm an active manager and I think my clients are going to kill it as a result of the active management that I'm doing um, and, and, and the disasters that we're going to be avoiding. But I think a lot of other people uh, will still beat the U.S. market. Uh, I don't think they're going to beat my strategy of investing you know, globally of investing in the countries that I'm doing, investing in the types of stocks. But I do believe that even if you're just a U.S. manager, if you're at least smart and you're doing the right thing in U.S. stocks, you've underperformed during this mania, but you're going to way outperform during the bear market. And, you know, that's when, unfortunately, a lot of these baby boomers are going to be wanting their money. And they're going to find out that, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you have, in, on your statements, what matters is how much do you have left when you need the money, when you have to start using the money to pay your bills because you're no longer working. And when a lot of the baby boomers look to tap into their retirement nest eggs, those nest eggs are going to be cracked. The eggs are going to be rotten. The money's not going to be there anymore, especially since it's almost like a Ponzi scheme because nobody is taking money out, right? They're all putting money into their 401ks and their IRAs, right? So people are buying, buying. But when the baby boom wants to retire and the baby bust, you know, generation, uh, you know, the millennials or generation X or, you know, the other generations have no savings and they can't buy out the stocks that the baby boom is unloading. Well, you have all sellers and you have no buyers and these index funds are going to implode. And then, you know, Jack Bobel's strategy is not going to look so good after we have a horrific bear market. But anyway, getting back to, you know, this guy who says that gold is completely useless as a metal because when you hear stuff like that i mean if you're a bull on gold i mean that's music to your ears right as a contrarian i love it when i'm tuning in to major financial channels and people are not only saying that gold's not a good investment that they're saying something so stupid that gold is not even a useful metal right and when you see that kind of mentality you know that you need to be buying gold i mean at some point in time this guy is going to be buying gold for his clients, whether it's going to be $5,000, $10,000 an ounce or who knows. But at some point, he'll be buying it. Maybe by then he'll figure out the other uses as well. But in the meantime, you know, gold is not really rising. I mean, it's up a bit, but it's not taken off. I mean, gold stocks are still down on the year, even though the price of gold is up on the year because people still don't get it. The dollar is still not sinking, even though the Fed has taken the rate hikes off the table. They've now paused something nobody thought was possible you know, a month ago, and now all of a sudden everybody accepts it. Again, it's like a deer in a headlight. It's just a matter of time, and it's not going to be a long time before the dollar starts to tank and gold starts to take off. You know, another news story that I heard today that seems like it's, you know, perfect timing for, you know, the end of the bull market and this new bear market is that they are now going to or thinking of, or maybe, they're, maybe they've decided, I'm not sure, but they're now going to make Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac private companies again. I think the stocks jumped about 25% each on the news that the government was thinking of doing this. Of course, the worst thing that they could do, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac should have been disbanded. They should not exist. We should have learned that lesson uh, from the housing bubble, the moral hazard that they both create. You can't have uh, privatized profits and subsidized losses. You can't let Fannie and Freddie go out there on a government guarantee and make all kinds of risky mortgages and then pass out the profits on those risky mortgages uh, to their shareholders and to their employees and bonuses. And then when all those risky mortgages blow up, pass on all the losses to the taxpayers. I mean, I mean that, that doesn't work. 
you know, in order to have capitalism, the people in control of the capital have to suffer the losses as well as the profits. You know, otherwise risk is going to run amok. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, I think it's fitting because Fannie and Freddie have been issuing lots of uh, risky mortgages, you know, under government ownership for political reasons. I mean, the government doesn't give a damn if these things blow up, but maybe they want to get them back in the private sector. So the next time they blow up, they don't blow up as government entities, but they blow up as government sponsored entities in the private sector. So the government can blame the private sector once again for the failure when they have to bail out both Fannie and Freddie all over again. Because they're going to need another bailout. If they put these things back in private hands, maybe they'll be able to milk some profits out of them for a few quarters before the whole thing blows up in the next uh, financial crisis and housing bubble. But these things are probably a bigger house of cards now than they were when the government took them over. And uh, so, again, this is just lunacy. It's It's insanity. It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Now, also, I, I meant to mention this on my last podcast, but I forgot because it was closer to the actual tweet. But Donald Trump put out a tweet again uh, on the wall on the government shutdown, which of course now is the longest government shutdown on record. And now, you know, they're going tit for tat on, you know, what they can do. You know, Trump, uh, you know, pulled the plug on Pelosi's, uh, you know, foreign trip by canceling the use of her private jet. She pressured him. He had, a, he had a back out of going to Davos. She's saying, hey, we're not going to let you do the State of the Union address. We're not going to invite you to Congress. I mean, they're all going back and forth uh, about this, but the government shutdown continues. I think now Trump is talking about recalling a lot of workers and paying them anyway, uh, even though we supposedly have this parcel shutdown. But supposedly the reason for the shutdown, the political reason, is the wall, this extra $5 billion uh, that Trump wants to build the wall. And he put out this tweet. And basically the tweet read that 23% of the federal inmates are illegal immigrants. And then he went and enlisted the number of murders, the number of rapes or robberies that illegals have committed. And the the um, inference that he's hoping that people draw from this or what he's implying is that there's a crime wave coming from illegal immigrants. And the reason that we need this wall is to stop the criminals from coming in because they're running rampant throughout the country. Because after all, if 23% of the federal inmates are illegals, I mean, because obviously 23% of the country is not illegal. So these guys must be a bunch of criminals, right? I mean, after all, if they're that big a percentage of the, the inmates, then I mean, God, I mean, every one of them must be a criminal, right? I mean, it must, they just be coming over here specifically to commit crimes. And none of that is true. I mean, that is completely false. And I hate it when the president deliberately tries to mislead the public into arriving at the wrong conclusion. Now, why did Donald Trump choose to say federal inmates, right, instead of just inmates? Because most of the people who are in jail are not in federal jail. They're in state jails, right? I mean, federal jails in general are full of a lot of nonviolent criminals, right? You're talking about tax evaders, embezzlers, right? I mean, th- this, this is not the kind of guy that scares most people, right? I mean, yes, these are crimes and a lot of the crimes are drug crimes, but it's nonviolent. People are dealing drugs, right? They're, that's a federal crime. And so uh, those are the people who are in uh, federal prisons, the, the violent criminals, right? The, the murderers, the robbers, the rapists, these guys are in state state prisons. Now, one of the other federal crimes, though, is violating the immigration laws, right? If you're here in this country illegally, you're violating a federal law. So since one of the major federal crimes for where and a reason that some people are in federal custody is because they violated immigration laws. Now, in order to violate the immigration laws, pretty much you got to be an illegal immigrant because if you're here legally, you're not violating immigration laws. So you're already going to have a disproportionate high number of illegals in federal prisons when federal prisons are there in part to house illegals because that's a federal crime. But if you actually look at the percentage of inmates in total, which would include all the state prisons where you have illegals, uh, there it's a much, much smaller number. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where it is. I mean, it's less than 5%, right? Right. Uh, And in fact, they've done studies. I'm not making these up. You can look them on the Internet. They have studies by, you know, Cato and other, you know, institutes 
that show that, you know, look at the crimes that are committed by illegals uh, and compare them to the crimes committed by, you know, native-born Americans. And the reality is that illegal immigrants are actually less likely to commit a crime and go to jail than native-born Americans. I mean, that's the facts. Now, it's true that legal immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than illegals, but still, all immigrants, no matter how they come into this country, are less likely to commit crimes than the people who are already here. Now, you know, I know people say, well, still, any crime is a crime, and so, you know, if we can stop one crime, then it, then it's worth it. Well, no, it's not, because there are a lot of people that come in who do good things, right? I mean, you can't say we're, you know, we're going to keep out all immigrants because if you're going to say, hey, we don't want to let anybody into this country who's going to commit a crime, well, then we can't have legal immigrants in either because legal immigrants are also going to commit crimes, just like native-born Americans are going to commit crimes. Hey, maybe we should sterilize everybody because, you know, people are going to commit crimes. And so if we sterilize anybody and nobody can have any more kids, well, nobody can have any more criminals. That's true, but then nobody can have any uh, geniuses or entrepreneurs or, you know, there are so many people that do good. Yes, some of them are going to do bad. And the same thing is true with immigrants, whether they're legal immigrants or illegal immigrants. A lot of people that come into this country illegally are law-abiding citizens other than the fact that they came in here illegally, right? They don't break other laws. Some of them do, but they are more law-abiding than the guys that are already here. And one of the reasons for that is probably the fact that they don't want to get deported, right? I mean, it's like if you are driving a car and you have an expired license or maybe you don't have insurance, chances are you're going to drive extra cautiously. You're going to go the speed limit, maybe five miles an hour over. You're going to use your turn signals every time you change lanes. You're going to drive as safe as you can. Why? Because the last thing you want is to get pulled over by a cop. Because now, you know, with, with an expired license or no insurance, the consequences are much heavier. So you're going to drive safer because of that. Well, that's probably the same mentality. If you're here illegally, you don't want to get arrested, right? Because, you know, you do a little thing and now they arrest you and they find out you're here illegally and you're, you know, you're, you know, you're kicked out. So a lot of these guys are probably on their best behavior, right? The last thing they want is to have any trouble with the law because they know they're here illegally. So that is the reality. There are, it isn't a big crime wave, right? That's just to scare people into thinking that we need to stop illegals because we have to stop crime. It's not going to work. If we stopped all the illegals from coming in, we wouldn't stop crime. Yes, there would be some crimes that might not be committed, but then there's a lot of positive things. There's a lot of things, and I've talked about this on this podcast, there's a lot of good things that illegal immigrants do in the economy, and we would be without that. Now, are there bad things that they do, even if they don't commit crimes? Yes. If they just come here and go on welfare, that's a bad thing, right? So you got some people coming here illegally to get welfare. That's bad. You got some people coming here illegally to work. That's good. So what we want to do is get rid of the bad illegals, but keep in the, the good illegals by actually making it easier for those good illegals to come here legally. That's what we really need. Immigration reform so that we get more good people coming into the country so they can work. We keep the bad people out, right? And we turn off the welfare magnets, right? And that's another way to make sure that the wrong people don't come in because they know they're not going to get a handout if they come here. They're going to have to, you know, work and whatever they get, they're going to have to get based on their own effort and their own, in, you know, initiative. They're not just going to come here and take a nap in the social uh, safety net like it's a hammock, you know, on the beach. I want to wrap up this uh, podcast by talking a little about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I have spoken about in the past, and I'm sure everybody knows who she is. She is the the youngest woman to ever serve in the U.S. House of Representatives, and now she is the youngest woman to serve on the House Financial Services Committee, a very powerful committee that actually oversees me because it oversees the NASD and the SEC. This is where I'm regulated as a broker, as an asset manager. So she's overseeing banks, financial services, and she is now writing rules and regulations. This, uh, what, 26 years old, I think is that how old she is, uh, socialist waitress is now uh, legislating 
you know, financial services on that committee. And, you know, people say, hey, Peter, what do you have against waitresses? You keep saying she's a, you know, waitress. Like, I got nothing against waitresses. I like waitresses. I eat a lot of restaurants. I really appreciate a good waitress. I mean, they can really make or break your dining experience. But, you know, just because I like waitresses doesn't mean I want them in Congress legislating, especially when they don't know anything about almost everything. I mean, she may be great waitress. I don't know. But she knows nothing about economics, even though she minored in economics. I mean, anybody can minor in economics in college, you know, and learn absolutely nothing. But she knows nothing about finance. She knows nothing about government, knows nothing about the Constitution. She got elected because a bunch of people who also know nothing voted for her. But, you know, now she's on this committee, her and Maxine Waters. I mean, I think she chairs the committee. So look at that committee. I mean, that's not looking good. But, you know, she just gave this speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. And C-SPAN has a Twitter account. I guess I never even knew about it, but they have one. And they tweeted out the speech. And it was the most watched speech in the history of C-SPAN's Twitter account. And it got, you know, millions of people that watched this. I mean, this woman is the most popular legislator. I mean, she's the most popular representative in the House. She's probably the most uh, popular uh, person in Congress right now. And she's someone who knows absolutely nothing about anything or about nothing about everything and who is a socialist. And the fact that she is so popular just shows you, I mean, how much trouble this country is in. In fact, they had some kind of mock poll you know, who would you vote for for president between her and Trump? And she almost won. I think it was within the margin of error. Now, of course, she's too young to actually be president. She's got to be 35. Uh, but, you know, people are willing to vote for her. Right now, of course, it's over Trump. I mean, I don't know, you know, how it would be if it was like a poll of the Democratic primary. But she is very, very popular and getting more popular. And so are her ideas. They had a poll uh, on this 70 percent top tax rate. And the majority of people were in favor of it. Now, of course, you know, that might not be because of her, because usually the majority of people are in favor of a 70% tax when it's on, on, on the very rich, right? I mean, she's talking about a 70% tax for people who make over 10 million. I mean, so a lot of people are like, well, shit, I'm not going to pay that. I mean, I don't even make anywhere near 10 million. And then people think, oh, if I made more than 10 million, sure, I'd be happy to pay that tax. Yeah, say that now. It's easy to say that, right? When you're, if you're making 50,000 a year, oh, I'd gladly pay 70% of my second 10 million. You know, you say that now, well, go ahead and make it. You won't be saying it. You know, people forget that, you know, as your income goes up, your overhead goes up. And I'm not saying people are struggling who are making 20 million a year. But if you're making 20 million a year and you got a yacht and a private jet and a lot of other things, I mean, if the government takes 70 percent of that second 10 million, you probably can't have those things anymore. And you probably you know, you probably like having those things. But also, if you're not going to be able to get your money, if you if you're making 10 million a year and the government says, well, we're going to take 70 percent of your next 10 million. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to stop at 10 million. I don't need any more money. What's the point? I'll wait till next year and earn another 10 million. And so I'm not going to work anymore. May, oh, you know, I'm making 20 million a year, but to make 10 million a year, maybe I should lay off half my workers. Maybe I should shut down some of these plants. Who needs all this aggravation for 30 cents of the dollar? I'd rather relax. I'd rather just go, go skiing or, you know, hang out on the beach or whatever, right? Travel. I want to spend, you know, enjoy my leisure. I'm not going to work if the government's taking 70% of my money. People forget about that fact. But the point is that you've got a lot of people who are, are wanting it. And, and what I keep reading, and this is the narrative, and I think I've, I know I've mentioned it on this podcast before, they go back to the 1950s and the 1960s, and they say, this was the heyday of America. This was the best economy we've ever had. This was the Ozzy and Harriet, leave it to Beaver, right? Everything was great. We had a great economy. We had a strong middle class. And it was because we had this 70 or 91% taxes. So the liberals are actually drawing a conclusion that because we have those high tax rates, that is the reason that we had this prosperity. And of course, that logic is completely flawed. Just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean that one of those things caused the other thing to happen. In fact, it's not that we had so much prosperity because of the 91% marginal tax rate, we had prosperity in spite 
of that high tax rate. The reason we had so much prosperity is because we had no taxes in generations before that. The income tax didn't even start until 1913. And when people talk about how we had the best economy ever in the 1950s, they're not even close to being right. We had the best economy ever in a period of time they call the golden age of America. And that was out about between 1870 and you know the First World War. Right. And that was when we had no income tax at all. It was zero. That was the most rapid period of economic growth. Right. Where standards of living for average people and lower income people grew faster than at any time in U.S. history. And we accomplished that with no income taxes at all. So you can't say that we had prosperity in the 50s because we had high taxes when we had even more prosperity as far as growth rates are concerned when we had no taxes whatsoever. The, see, the key to the prosperity that we had during the 1950s was the ability not to pay those high taxes. They were easily avoidable. That's why we were able to survive you know, back then because nobody really paid those high taxes. I mean, it was easy to deduct things. You know, you, know, you had all kinds of tax shelters that people had. I mean, people would just put entire, you know, all, all the big chunks of money into, into investment deals, whether it was oil and gas or something else, because if they didn't invest it in a tax shelter, they were going to have to send it to the government. So you had this huge, vibrant tax shelter industry that was going on and where money wasn't really being invested in its highest and best use. People were, were being motivated by the desire to avoid taxes rather than to make money, because when tax rates are really high, you know, reducing your income becomes more lucrative than making money. Because when taxes are high, if you can reduce your income, let's say taxes are 70% and you can reduce your income. Well, let's say you reduce your income by a million dollars, you save 700,000 in taxes. Whereas if you earn an extra million, you only get to keep 300,000. So you actually make more money by reducing your income and lowering your taxes than you do by increasing your income and raising your tax. So everybody is trying to figure out how to shelter their income or reduce their income so they can save on taxes rather than growing and expand the economy. And, and so the, the, the economic growth that we actually had during the 50s was not nearly as good as it would have been. We would have had an even stronger economy in the 50s and 60s had we had lower taxes or had we had lower tax rates that didn't encourage all this type of, you know, a wasteful investing. And, you know, if we would have had lower marginal tax rates, we would have had more productive investment. Of course, it was a lot easier to cheat back then. Again, there were no 1099s. There were no computers. We had a lot. Most people were using cash. Uh, so it was easy not to report your income. And, and that was the secret. But you, you read all these stories now and the left is fantasizing about this world of, of high taxes where, you know, the rich were just happily paying all these taxes and it was, you know, creating all this wealth for everybody else when all that is fantasy. I mean, you look at the the amount of money that wealthy people pay, they were not paying a higher share of taxes in the 50s than they are today. I mean, it wasn't much different. Uh, so, you know, they're paying actually more in taxes uh, with the lower rates because they have more reportable income that is subject to tax. But, you know, it's Ocasio-Ortez that is making this whole notion uh, so popular and just bringing it up to the fore uh, is that, you know, she's so popular, she's embracing it, everybody else is embracing it. And, you know, when this recession really takes hold, which it will before the next election, I mean, there's no question that we're going to go into recession uh, before the elections of 2020. And that recession is going to be blamed on the policies of the Republicans, on tax cuts, on deregulation. And when that happens, I mean, this is all, the only alternative that seems viable. We, you know, we tried capitalism. We went all in on capitalism, right, with Trump. And, gee, that didn't work. So we might as well try uh, socialism, right? I mean, after all, it worked so well in Sweden, right? It worked so well in Denmark. Little did people understand again how badly it, it didn't work in those countries. Again, you have countries that get rich under capitalism, and then when they become socialists and start squandering that wealth, people forget where the wealth came from in the first place. You know, they didn't get rich under socialism. Nobody gets rich under socialism. You get poor under socialism. You get rich 
under capitalism. And then at some point, capitalism, if you're living in a democracy, can unfortunately turn into socialism because of all the greed uh, and the envy that ultimately comes up in capitalism. I mean, even though people get richer, somebody else is always richer than they are. And, you know, human emotion, you know, brings people to the lowest common denominator and governments get more power and then they start screwing things up. And then, you know, you make the poor even poorer and then they make, they get even more resentful, which is what's happened now where you have these monetary policies that have combined with fiscal policy to really enrich a handful of people. Like look at, you know, the salary, Jamie Dimon's, I forget what his, you know, a record salary he had this year, and he just got another raise, and people looking at this guy, what is it, making $20, $30 million a year, you know, and and then, you know, you compare the, the, the top salaries of these guys and on, on top of the, the, the Wall Street pyramid, how much they make, and then you look at, you know, the average guy, and as this, you know, disparity continues to get wider and wider and wider, because of the, the monetary magic tricks at the Fed and because of the way uh, the, the system is rigged through the, uh, the taxes and the regulations, uh, people resent the capitalism because these rich guys are the face of capitalism and they look at them as evil and greedy. And what they should be resenting is government's interference in capitalism, is the taxation and the regulation that is leading to these extreme disparities. If we just had pure free markets, there would be disparities, of course, but they wouldn't be as extreme. And the people who are getting rich would be getting rich because of all the good they were doing for the masses by providing them with uh, products and services of high quality at a competitive price. That's what would be going on in a free market, but with all the rent-seeking uh, that goes on in a socialist, you know, type economy and a in a phony a capitalist economy, and the money that are able to make money off the Fed and off of bleeding the system through uh, credit and 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 bubbles, right? None of that enriches anybody except the people who are directly benefiting. It's not like the invisible hand that Adam Smith wrote about. Uh, there is no invisible hand. I mean, people are making money for themselves, but it is not at the same time benefiting everybody else like we would have in a true free market economy where the government you know, ste- stepped aside and allowed uh, the free market to work. Anyway, I am headed up to uh, Vancouver tomorrow morning. I have an early flight and going through Chicago, hoping we don't have any bad weather or anything there that kind of grounds me and and, and delays my flight or maybe even causes me to miss it. Uh, but I'm going to be up there again, as I said, for the Vancouver Resource Conference. I will be there up until, I think, the 22nd, and then I head back. Hopefully, I miss the storm again. There's another big snowstorm coming through New England or the Northeast. I'm coming back uh, through Newark on the way back. There are no direct flights uh, between uh, Vancouver and Puerto Rico. In fact, there's no direct flights between Puerto Rico and any place out on the West Coast. So you always have to change planes, and it's always uh, uh, you know a crapshoot when you're doing it in the wintertime and you get some snow. So I might be able to do a podcast uh, from my hotel room, at least one, while I'm up there. I'm looking forward to seeing anybody, any of my Canadian uh, friends or some clients who are up there. I will be in the gold money booth uh, and some of the time. Although Sunday, I'm probably going to be watching the football games, so I'm probably not going to be at the booth most of that day. But I'll be at the booth all day on Monday, so make sure and drop by and see me. (laughs) 